This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, you've tuned into The Property Show, the show all about everything property-related, and I'm Chong Jen Sun. Today, we're looking at Kazana's report on residential settlements and spatial inequality, a study of Greater Kuala Lumpur neighbourhoods. Kazana Research Institute recent report on this examines inequality as demonstrated spatially by the agglomeration processes to complement the wider discussions of inequalities in Malaysia. It expands inequality from not just what money can buy, but to concepts of well-being associated with the different types of freedoms and functionings that one might have access to based on where one is located. Due to the complex and interconnected natures of cities, the scope of its research is based on residential settlements and place differentiation. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Suraya Ismail, Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute. Dr. Suraya, the gist of the Kazana report is the widening inequality from not just a monetary standpoint, but to the concepts of well-being associated with the various types of freedoms and functionings. What are the key factors that have catalyzed these freedoms? and findings and has this disparity widened in Malaysia? Um, basically, this uh, this report is looking into, um, as you rightly mentioned, not just the concepts of um, inequality from a monetary perspective, but also from a spatial perspective. Um, let me just define a few um, labels that we have used in this report. One is the freedom and functionings um, that we have utilised the work of Ahmad Yassin, whereby as a country prosper as, or as a country develop in monetary terms, there must be some positive development uh, initiative commensurating with um, monetary gains. For example, a decent uh, lifestyle, decent um, standard of living, and that is captured between uh, with uh, access to good education, access to good amenities, um, good housing, decent housing, as well as the ability to mingle with society in a decent and, and a respectful way. So we have um, characterized this um, concept into our report by saying that um, from the perspective of residential uh, characteristics, have we seen these um, freedoms and functionings existing at neighbourhoods? And if so, what are the differences between um, each city and therefore the microcosm, which is a neighbourhood? This is the first time in, the, in, the, in, in, in Malaysia that we have done a study on the characteristics of freedom and functionings at the neighbourhood uh, scale. Uh, I might want to say that basically this is an outcome of um, many years of, of, of city development because as you as you know, cities are developed over time. Um, so the trajectory of cities are basically based on say for example, uh, political cities um, in Rome and Beijing therefore it's quite um, uh, dictatorship and not, I don't want to say dictator but um, polit- uh, politically led but in comparison, uh, some cities after, after those uh, uh, medieval times are based on economic activities and therefore leverage, leveraging our growth on the agglomeration economies. So when we have a city that grows on agglomeration economies and we have a history, historical development which is based on colonial uh, administration, of course the West Coast will be more affluent than the East Coast because this is where um, most uh, thriving activities uh, came about in the 19th century and coming into the 20th century. So based on that historical um, evolution as well, we did this study and we saw there are great disparities 
is between the West Coast and the East Coast. And that's why we went straight into Greater Kuala Lumpur base so that we can actually see not just within a country, but even in a space like Greater KL, there are disparities uh, quite, quite clearly observed. The research drills down to residential settlements and place differentiation, which has widened the equality. Can you explain why residential settlements was chosen as a factor? So, you see, many, many of our local planning are done at the uh, district level. Um, it, and, and we think in Kerala, it, it loses the essence of ensuring that we have good neighbourhoods, good amenities at the neighbourhood level. Um, and therefore, our studies look into what type of amenities could best increase the level of participation, the level of uh, decent living, uh, functioning and freedom um, for the inhabitants. And in this um, research, we saw that there is a quite a um, difference between those uh, that are placed quite uh, in affluent areas and those that are placed in less affluent areas. However, this does not um, mean that um, some of these differences are good or bad. It depends on the neighbourhood. Because if a neighbourhood has a lot of less affluent um, community, then the ecosystem must be able for them to be able to have decent cost of living and decent types of um, purchasing uh, power vis-a-vis the amenities that they have. Um, the problem arises when a, a less affluent neighbourhood is being put in a place whereby the cost of living in that area is too high, which makes the uh, residents in that place need to look into informal types of purchasing um, uh, goods, like they go for pasamalam or etc., things like that. So the advert of, say for example, too many shopping complexes and less on um, items that, that are needed for day-to-day expenses are something that we look into as well for the first hierarchy of functioning. Now, the second hierarchy, because we look into what are the function of society, once you want to basically thrive as a neighbourhood, then we want to see whether there are tuition facilities, there are uh, more facilities that increase your social mobility. And these facilities or amenities are more in the affluent neighbourhood. So, so there, there's, a, there's a disparity there because how can that ecosystem facilitate someone from a less affluent or less differentiated neighbourhood become more, um, gets better with the ecosystem that permits them to increase or invest in their own social mobility in terms of education, in terms of job security and job creation. Yeah, that's certainly very interesting. Dr. Suraya, can you speak on the new urbanism model, a widely popular and influential urban planning movement in the West and how rapidly it has been adopted in Malaysia? I don't think it's been adopted in <laughs> Malaysia right. at all. But what is, that is a wonderful question. What is this new urbanism model that we want to propagate and we want to advocate um, in this um, report. It's a widely popular and influential urban planning movement in the West uh, led by Jane Jack- Jacobs. It outlines some principles in developing a diverse, multifunctional and well-integrated neighbourhood. So the scale of uh, development is at the neighbourhood scale. Now, the principles of new urbanism mostly revolve around the ideas of promoting walkable neighbourhoods with well-connected transportation networks and greater integration of mixed land users at the neighbourhood level, which include provision of adequate, decent, affordable housing, workplaces, shops, education, public spaces, places that you can run around and have picnics, uh, amongst others. Now, the ultimate aim of this model is to rejuvenate the physical design and the social values of the neighbourhoods, creating a stronger sense of community 
and thus promoting a positive and quality lifestyle. But the community must be engaged in devising their own strategies because this is near their own neighbourhood. The research paper also suggests that prosperous neighbourhoods are characterised by high levels of place differentiation. Does this just boil down to whether you live in a better or a more affluent neighbourhood, which say has a better local council that invests in the community and not be stuck in a cycle of non-investment? This is a tricky one. So, so we do see that uh, happening. And I think uh, one of the things that we want to promote is that even if a neighbourhood is quote-unquote binded by the income of the people there, local council with partnership, with the partnership with the private sector could use the model that we have uh, described in this report in order to think about what are the new amenities that is needed for a neighbourhood to be thriving. So say for example, because you must um, understand that a city is not, you know, or a neighbourhood, uh, what is a city if not a conflu- uh, sorry, an, a number of neighbourhoods coming together? And it is not done in just 10 years. It, took, uh, it will take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to mature. So when we actually ma- map out the types of amenities that could create thriving amenities, these are something, this is an opportunity, a business opportunity, as well as an opportunity for the local council to increase the level of uh, participation as well, uh, from the private sector to make a neighbourhood more thriving. In our report, we've uh, come up with a model to show the trajectory of amenities that is needed to make neighbourhoods more differentiated and therefore increasing the propensity of creating a good middle class. So hence, um, well, people can look at this report and you can see the, the hierarchy of amenities that could be invested. Um, and, and, and how do we do this? It is by funding local council to then give the leadership as well as funding from the private sector. Now, one might say that why would you want to invest in a, a decrypted uh, neighbourhood? But the thing is, due to the the sorry the probability or even the opportunity that these places have not had yet, the first mover will have the advantage of making that place more thriving if you go into the right amenities. If you go for social mobility amenities, this has, from our report, this has a higher type of um, return on investment than if you go for the normal consumer goods. And what would be the necessary factors or amenities to make a neighbourhood meet the criteria of being diverse and thriving? One of the things that we found is that if you have more places whereby tuition centres for the development of children as well as good public amenities for parents and, and communities to come together, what is special spatial agglomeration? It's not just about economic agglomeration but social agglomeration. When people have a place to come together in a neighbourhood to talk about what makes their neighbourhood better or what could be done to make their neighbourhood better. This is what those, these are the amenities that will create that social fabric that will hold the neighbourhoods together. We don't see this in some of the less uh, differentiated neighbourhoods. Yes, definitely. And more places for kids to play as well. Over the yes. course of economic development, countries eradicate poverty and facilitate the emergence of the middle class. One of the key questions raised in your report is, are, are our capacities to grow into middle income earners limited by the neighbourhoods we reside in? What is the solution for this? I would really like your questions. Um, so this is the outcome of basically what has come out. Now, if we look into the culture of being middle class, it's not just monetary. As I mentioned before, the middle class, What if we look at other, other countries is that, or other neighbourhoods, is that they have the capacity to come together and make their places better. So this links very well with new urbanism. You can't be a middle class and not care for your neighbourhood. It doesn't work. You can't leave it to the local 
council, you can't leave it to the politicians to do their work and you not putting your effort in. Most of the middle class neighbourhoods, it's not just about purchasing power and include putting your social mobility uh, amenities. The third factor is the social fabric and middle class is a cultural uh, behaviour as well. Taking care of the people around you, not just your family and making sure that that area is good and thriving and safe. Now, if the middle class are all in gated areas, how, how could we facilitate such community or collective action? So one is, of course, amenities, but secondly, the culture of being in the middle class is so is very much missing in our neighbourhoods now. And we'll be taking a short break for some messages. Don't go anywhere. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, welcome back. You've tuned into The Property Show. I'm Chong Jensen. Today's topic is the Kazana's report on residential settlements and spatial inequality, a study of greater Kuala Lumpur neighbourhoods. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Suraya Ismail, Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute. Dr. Suraya, I read with great interest that there has been research done that a better measure of household well-being is based on consumption. Well-being is less about your level of income, but more about the diversity of items that income can buy. What needs to be done at the local council, neighbourhood level, or at the government level to achieve this? In this um, report, um, we have constructed a model based on on-site development that has emerged in neighbourhoods across uh, Greater KL. So our, surprise, uh, our findings suggest that the more diverse neighbourhoods are situated in Kuala Lumpur and Petaling Jaya and by implication will be more conducive for the attainment of higher order or second tier needs which leads into the middle class um, types of behaviour. Now, more, Moreover, we found that all neighbourhoods have been equipped with first tier amenities, meaning basic like hospitals and, and some, some clinics. So this suggests that in terms of place equality, all neighbourhoods have the basic amenities to fulfil everyday functionings of li- livelihoods, but not to propel them to go up further. So following this construction of, we call it the GKL, amenity space. So we propose that local council, neighbourhood and government uh, use this the application of the GKL amenity space to describe the probable pathways in the development of thriving neighbourhoods. Now, since some neighbourhoods share similarities with others, the greater KL, GKL, uh, GKL amenity space could be used in conjunction with a needs analysis to identify what amenities are currently lacking in particular neighbourhood. And additionally, the model, when you use this model, it can serve as a decision filter for uh, property owners, for uh, communities to identify what amenities would likely thrive based on the existing neighbourhood structure. So we don't want homogeneous uh, neighbourhoods, we want heterogeneity, but based on GLK amenity space that shows you the different trajectories or pathways local council and neighbourhood could take. This can be a platform whereby everybody can see the development, the current development of other neighbourhoods, the historical development of other neighbourhoods and what they want their neighbourhood to be. So this can be a model uh, they can use and really accessible. Uh, you can download this from our, our website as well, this report, to monitor some of the initiatives that you have done, you will plan, uh, sorry, you, you plan, and to see whether it gave what you wanted. Did it come up about to have a, a thriving uh, neighbourhood and, and increase your chances of a higher social mobility. But Dr. Suraya, more than often, neighbourhood vibrancy is measured primarily by real estate valuation or prices. How do we change this mindset? We just need to change it. So we hope that with this, you see, you see, you know, if you look at cities as just a real estate jigsaw puzzle, you will never have a thriving city. You will never have a livable city because all you care about is real estate investment and, and returns. A public park has no ROI, but it has social returns on community. 
community, a place for children to play. It's a long-term uh, social uh, equity for the residents over there. But this has no ROI. So we need not just, you know, private developers. It's also us as community that really wants our house prices to go up, real estate to go up. We must also value the tangible criteria or parameters of a neighbourhood so that that too could be factored in when you actually evaluate or you want to give a price to a neighbourhood, value to a neighbourhood. Absolutely. One of the chapters in your research paper touches on the greater KL amenity space and the method of reflection which depicts the diversity of a neighbourhood. What are some of the key parameters being used and has this methodology been used to help residents, businesses and as well as local councils? So this is a, a new method that we have started in KRI, done some focus group discussion with some of the government um, circles, uh, people in the government circles, and they're very um, very pleased to, to, to mention here that they are quite uh, interested to look further into the parameters that we have developed, basically, especially what are first-tier amenities, which is fulfilling basic needs, and what are second-tier amenities that propel you into a higher uh, standard of living. So they're looking at this, and I hope there are more private sector who look at this and see this as an opportunity to invest in certain neighbourhoods so that when these neighbourhoods do become thriving and vibrant, you will reap both the social and the monetary benefits. Dr Suraya, I found Chapter 3 of your paper the most interesting and perhaps the most relevant. This explores the housing experience of home buyers in the hedonic price models to estimate willingness to pay in acquiring homes with distinct housing characteristics. I would imagine most of the top developers in the country have done their research and are skewing their development mix to cater to the changing needs of buyers. But I'm curious to know what were the key findings for Kazana and what are the recommendations for policy changes? Yes, as you know, we have been doing a lot of work on housing, yes. And we feel that uh, when we actually look at neighbourhoods and amenities, we would like to anchor it to housing. Uh, hence why we did Chapter 3. Uh, because a house is where a family anchors their, their life. It is a place for them to access work, to, for them to go for education, so a house is very important for any for any um, uh, neighbourhood and as well as household. Now, the interesting thing about this hedonic pricing model is that it looks into willingness to pay and willingness to pay during the different life cycle of the family. What we are propagating is if you are a single young couple, you have a smaller house and then you go up the property ladder when you have a family and you might want to have landed. And then after that, for retirement, you go back to having a smaller house because of the emptiness as a characteristic of a family. Okay. However, in our other studies, we found out that this property, uh, most properties are stuck in one cycle, meaning people only buy one house because this is based on outcome, uh, based on the evidence that we saw, most houses are being held 20 to 30 years. So there's no, this is the normal person and not those who flip the property. So they, they have less possibility of uh, moving up the property ladder because there's enough, not enough choices um, in terms of making sure that you can grow, your family can grow with enough product differentiation from the private sector. This is not happening, be it from a decent housing quality perspective or from the affordability perspective. This can't be done without making sure that housing is generally affordable to all strata of society because currently it's not. Because you see that people stuck with one property and can't do this property ladder step up. Dr. Suraya, I know in one of Kazana's research proposals to promote better housing that are more affordable, there's a development of a good quality housing standard through a proposed new national housing standard or the NHS to identify 
gaps of the NHS 2019 to households' needs and demands? Has the government been listening to this? We showed that there are the private sector has given low-cost housing to uh, the lower-income uh, population, and and these houses are in dire dire straits. It does not meet satisfy the criteria of good quality housing standard. Now there are now from CIDB the government has given a guidance on good quality housing standard, but that's for new build. It's not for existing um, housing. And as you know, neighbourhoods, they come about after 10, 20 years, then you see a good neighbourhood. So one of the things that we want to uh, advocate here is that good quality housing standard must not just be for incoming stock, but existing stock. Um, so we have to ensure that all housing stock, nearly 6 million housing stock in Malaysia, is in good condition. Now, in order to facilitate a good condition type of uh, housing, also good for, also very important for the step-up ladder property that we want to uh, create in future, because it's not happening now, is that all houses are in good condition. What is needed to ensure that this happens? One, a very good uh, refurbishment sector. Because so many so many people, you, you know when we do refurbishment, so many people are saying, oh, I can't trust my contractor. It's overblown, all the estimate. So we need to regulate this sector too. Because if not, we will be stuck with 5.9 billion, uh, sorry, million houses that is um, that is um, in dilapidated conditions because it's too expensive to refurbish. That's all the time we have for the property show. I've been speaking to Dr. Soraya Ismail, Director of Research at Kazana Research Institute. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.